21. So I want you to, uh, again, try to put a marker in both places, Matthew 24 and Luke 21. We're on lesson number 132, continuation of the Olivet Discourse. And um, it's part two, subtitled, The Destruction of Jerusalem. All right, everybody ready? Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time here this morning. Father God, we thank you again for this opportunity we have to assemble together, to have the freedom to assemble and study your word to get to know you better, that we might have our faith stretched, that we might humbly sit at, at your feet as serious students of your word, because it's only by knowing your word that we can obey it and that we ha- can have our, stre- our faith stretched and, and consequently that we can please you. We can't very well please you if we don't know you and um, obey you and stretch our faith daily. Lord, um, we, we just pray your blessing on this lesson. I know it's a, a historical lesson, and yet your Holy Spirit can even take something that's just based on history and use it to speak to our hearts and indeed to stretch our faith because we know that um, as prophecy in the past it has been fulfilled literally and specifically, everything you have to say about the future will likewise be fulfilled literally and specifically. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that heaven and earth will one day pass away, but the word, your word, O oh Lord, shall endure forever, that we can place our absolute trust in it for not only today, but for tomorrow and for all of eternity. Now, I just pray that you would hide me behind the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he alone might receive any glory from what is accomplished here this morning. For we pray in his name. Amen. The discourse that the Lord Jesus spoke to his disciples as he sat upon the Mount of Olives. This was a tough question, wasn't it? Your homework question. How did the Mount of Olives, I mean the discourse, Olivet Discourse get its name? Because it was spoken from... Mount of Olives. See, that was easy. Who could complain about the homework questions? They're a piece of cake. <laughs> but that discourse, that sermon, uh, was spoken, of course, just a few days before the Lord Jesus went to the cross. And it is one of the most important speeches in all of the scripture. Even though this sermon or discourse speaks of some of the yet future Um, catastrophic, catastrophic, devastating, atrocious events that will take place one day on this earth. It is also, even though there's a lot of bad things in this sermon, just like the book of Revelation, yet it's also a great testament of hope, we could call it, because it does tell us that the Lord Jesus will return. Look at verse 30 of Matthew 24. He is going to return in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. That is a fact. That is truth you can bank on. He is going to return. And that is the ultimate goal of all the prophecies that concern not only the nation of Israel, but also the church and the nations. This discourse, therefore, even though it's got a lot of bad news in it, yet it, is, it should be a source of encouragement to us living here in the church age, even though it was specifically spoken to Israel, it's an encouragement for us not to sink in the depression of this world, which is so easy to do, is it not? And to hold on to the hope of Christ's ultimate victory over this earth at the time of his return. Daily, you can't help but hear, you know, if you turn on the news, unless you live in a little, you know, 
cocoon somewhere, you can't help but hear daily of all the evils that are taking place on this planet and all the injustices and all the chaos and the humanly insolvable problems that are going on, especially over there in the Middle East and with Islam and and, uh, Christianity and Judaism and just, you know, humanly insolvable. No man has an answer. Now, the world will think one particular man has an answer for a while, but his answer is a false answer. He will be the Antichrist. Who's the only one who has an answer to the situation in the world? Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Um, we can't hear. We can't help but hear about all the perplexity of the nations and um, the confusion in the White House. <laughs> Who knows what's going on? The confusion even within Christendom. You know, if I was an unsaved person and heard about just all the different things going on within Christendom and one teaching this and another teaching that, it's just like utter chaos. So in thinking of all that, we have to be glad. We should be glad. We should be thankful that we have this message, this Olivet Discourse, left to us by the Lord Jesus because it comforts us as we read it and study it. It comforts us to know that everything he said in this discourse as well as in the book of Revelation, which is a parallel to this discourse, everything is going to come to pass just exactly as he has said. It should comfort us to know that he has absolutely everything under his control. Now, to us, it doesn't look like that sometimes, does it? But he does. Nothing surprises him. Did the earthquakes in Haiti surprise him? Nothing surprises God. Everything is under his sovereign control. And it should comfort us to know that soon, very soon, the heavens will open up and he will appear with great power and glory. And that's the time of his second coming. So for you and I in the church age, how much even sooner is his coming for us in the rapture, which precedes his second coming by seven years? I believe we're on the precipice of that. I believe it is just absolutely around the corner. And I know your mother said the same thing and your grandmothers, but trust me, everything was not aligned in their day as it is in ours. For one thing, Israel had to be back in the land. That didn't happen until 1948. Uh, another thing, I mean, have you ever seen the world aligned as perfectly as it is today with everything that, that should be, with the nations in alignment, with the... European Union and the, 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 the drive for a one-world government and a one-world economy. I mean, it's just, it's imperfect. And, you know, the rapture happens seven years before all these things, so we're there. We're there. Oh, even so, come quickly. <laughs> uh, I know you young girls don't like that too much, but, you know, as far as my age is concerned, I'd like to just be out of here. <laughs> All right, well, prior to uh, ascending the mount to the east of the city, the Lord, remember, had told his men that the temple they so greatly admired, all the Jews greatly admired because it absolutely was awesome to behold, he had told them that it was to be reduced to nothing more than rubble. He had said that not one stone would even be left upon another. That was in Matthew 24, 2. He said, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
He had also, do you remember just two days earlier? Now we're on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Do you remember on Sunday, as he left Bethany and he was coming into Jerusalem, he crested the Mount of Olives, and all of a sudden before him, he had a panoramic view of Jerusalem. And we are told in Luke 19.41 that as he looked at the city, what did he do? He wept. He wept. You know why he wept? Because... He knows the end from the beginning. He knew what would be happening in a few short years, what we'll be discussing today, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He saw all that, and remember, he said these words. He said, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, thy day, that day, Palm Sunday, they could have known that that was the day predicted by Daniel the prophet that the Messiah would officially present himself to Israel. If they had known that day, they would have accepted him as their Messiah, but they didn't. He said, if you had known at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, she could have had peace because she could have had the Prince of Peace at that time. But he knew that she wouldn't know him she would reject him and so he says but now they are hid from thine eyes and Israel has had the truth hidden from her eyes for 2,000 years now for the days shall come upon thee he said that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee we're going to talk about that today that happened in 70 AD and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground. In other words, raise it, raise Jerusalem to the ground, level it to the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. That was in Luke 19 verses 42 and 43. So he had not only predicted the destruction of, Israel, of uh, Jerusalem back then, but then he had just done it in Matthew 24, too. And it was these statements about the temple's destruction. I mean, they were thinking, the disciples were thinking, this is the temple of God. Why would God ever allow it to be destroyed? And look at how awesome, how could anyone ever destroy this beautiful, huge, magnificent, colossus temple? And so it was these statements about its destruction, along with his earlier that day prophecy, of its desolation. Remember in Matthew twenty three thirty eight, you can look at it. He had said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And they thought, how could it be left desolate? They didn't realize that as soon as he stepped out of it, it was left desolate because he was the Shekinah glory of God veiled in human flesh. And he left, he left the temple and he wouldn't return again until the time of his second coming. So that prophecy had already actually been fulfilled. But they're thinking, how can these things be? So this is what prompted Peter, Andrew, James, and John to approach him as he sat down on the Mount of Olives to rest. They're on their way back Tuesday. You know, he'd had all those confrontations. He's on his way back to Bethany. He stops on the Mount, sits down. The four apostles come to him to ask him two extremely question, uh, important questions, significant questions. There's really three, but the second two are, are one question. The first question he, they ask him is, when would this happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? When is Jerusalem going to be leveled? When, Lord? When is this going to happen? Second question is, was, uh, what is to be the sign of your coming and thus the end of this age? Now, remember the Jews believed in just two ages, the age of anticipating the Messiah, and as soon as he came, 
the first age would end and the second age would automatically begin because that would be the age of the kingdom. So they thought, you know, what's the sign of your coming, which will subsequently end this first age? So you see how those two questions are really one question. Now, remember that the disciples were anticipating an any-day establishment of the promised kingdom. They were thinking, I mean, what better time for him to establish the kingdom than at the Passover when literally representatives of all 12 tribes of Israel were there in Jerusalem and the city was packed with people. What better time for him to, you know, unveil his glory as three of those four disciples had seen already on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had seen his unveiled glory. So they're thinking this would be the time for him to reveal who he is and establish the kingdom. And we know that they were thinking this way. Remember when they were back in Jericho, which was the last stop city before they got to Jerusalem, and he there had uh, had uh, healed blind Bartimaeus, and then he had a, a little situation, an incident, with um, the chief tax collector named Zacchaeus, a wee little man. And he said to Zacchaeus, after Zacchaeus was saved, he said, Behold, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And then Luke told us that when the disciples heard these things, they thought, this is in Luke 19, 11, they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So they're thinking any day now, the kingdom. He's going to reveal himself for who he really is. No one will doubt it. Um, and the kingdom will appear. So, and as far as they were concerned, uh, this was the best time for him to do it because it was the Passover. Now, uh, we can't expect the disciples to have understood like you and I do because we have the advantage of hindsight, but they didn't understand that there were going to be two comings of the Messiah, that there would be two advents of the Messiah. Similarly, they did not understand that there were to be two times of destruction of both Jerusalem and the temple. One destruction, and that's what we're going to be talking about in this lesson later today, this morning, one destruction would occur in what year? 70 AD, just 37 years from where they were at this point in time. 37 years from this point, 30, uh, 70 AD, one, that would be the one time that the the temple and and Jerusalem would be destroyed. And it would serve as sort of a foreshadowing or a mini picture of the even worse end times destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that will occur when? Yeah, in the time of tribulation, immediately before, or three and a half years before the arrival of the Messiah at his second coming. So the destruction in 70 A.D., of the temple in Jerusalem is a picture, a foreshadowing picture of what will happen again during the time of the tribulation before the Lord Jesus does return. Now, before continuing, um, I do need to discuss for a minute. This is where you all have to put on your thinking caps a little bit, okay? Um, This might not be too hard for you because you're all great students of the word, but We have to discuss for a minute the fact that this yet future interpretation of the Olivet Discourse that I am going to be teaching, you know, that it hasn't happened yet, other than what we're going to look at in Luke today, which happened in 70 AD, the rest of the Olivet Discourse, all the rest of Matthew 24 and 25 
hasn't happened yet. I teach you that it hasn't happened yet, that it's yet future. That's called a pre-millennial interpretation of um, scripture, prophetic scripture. I would not only teach the Olivet Discourse this way, I have taught the book of Revelation that way, that it hasn't yet occurred. Um, Daniel, big portions of Daniel and Zechariah, they're called apocalyptic or eschatological, meaning end times prophecies. But there are Bible scholars out there who teach different interpretations. And so some of you might hear some of these other interpretations and scratch your heads and say, why? Why does Catherine teach premillennial interpretation and they teach this way? So what I want to do right now is tell you the four main interpretations and why I disagree with the three of them and why we're teaching premillennialism, okay? They're in the notes, and you can, if you don't get it now, you can study it more in depth uh, when you get your notes. There is the general view of liberal theologians. There is the view of amillennialists. There is the view of postmillennialists. And then there is the view that I take, which is that of premillennialism. Let's talk first about liberal Bible scholars. Now, I'm not just talking about liberals out there. I'm talking about people who study God's word, okay? Liberal theologians or scholars who uh, do not believe in legitimate prophecy of the future and attempt to explain away all the supernatural aspects of the scripture. It's unbelievable, but they, um, they will explain away every miracle Jesus ever performed, They'll say that he didn't really feed 5,000, which was really 15,000 people at least, um, with just a little lad's lunch. But what happened was that the little lad, when he took out his lunch and was willing to share, then everybody else took out their little lunches and they were willing to share. And they'll say, you know, Jesus didn't really walk on water in this storm, but he knew where the sandbars were which would probably take a greater <laughs> God to know where the... Or, or one even said stepping stones. There were stepping stones out there in the Lake of Galilee, which is absurd because it's very deep. But, you know, they'll explain away. They say there is no real legitimate prophecy. So in to, to avoid saying, for example, that Daniel's prophecies were amazing, have amazingly come true, they'll say, well, Daniel wrote the book after all these things happen. So they push up the date and that's what liberal theologians do. So they take the Olivet Discourse and say that it's not, there's nothing valid in it for you and I today. Uh, this is much as they do with the book of Revelation. That's why so many churches don't even bother teaching the book of Revelation because they say it's not important for us today. It's not about the future. It's already took place in the past and it's just sort of irrelevant. They do the same thing with Daniel and Zechariah, etc. So they dismiss the Olivet Discourse as being irrelevant for today. However, because I do believe 2 Timothy 3.16 is still in the Bible, still in my Bible, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We're going to dismiss the liberal interpretation. If you've been in this Bible study long enough, you know I've already dismissed it long ago. So, you know, all the liberals who ever come here quickly disappear. So probably none of you are in those shoes. But anyway, 
<laughs> I would absolutely go the opposite of what they say and say that the Olivet Discourse is the greatest prophetic sermon in all of the scripture, given by the greatest prophet who ever lived. So, to the liberals. All right, now next interpretation is the amillennial interpretation. Now, you know whenever there is a letter A put in front of a word, like if somebody is amoral, what does that mean? They don't have morals, not morals. So a millennial means that they don't believe no kingdom, no literal 1,000-year kingdom. They don't believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. And therefore, they take the prophecies of the, old, of the Olivet Discourse and try to find their fulfillment in the first century destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. So they teach that everything predicted in the sermon has already been fulfilled. Now, what I want to do for just a little bit here, I give seven reasons that I refute this position in your notes, but I'm going to quickly go over just a few of those. I'm not going to give you all seven now, but I'm going to give you some reasons from the scripture itself to refute the amillennial interpretation and tell you why the Olivet Discourse must refer to yet future end times events and cannot solely uh, speak of either the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem or, as some other amillennialists try to suggest, to events that have occurred all throughout the church age. Some amillennialists would say that the Olivet Discourse is just constantly taking place during the, um, the church age that you and I live in. Well, one strong argument against the amillennialist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse is based on the word sorrows. You're in Matthew 24. Look at verse 8, where Jesus says uh, that all these things are the beginning of sorrows. See that word sorrows? In the original Greek, this is a word that speaks of birthing or labor pains that a woman experiences before delivering a child. Now, just prior to the appearance of this word in verse 8, what had Jesus been speaking of? He had been speaking, look at verses 5 to 7, of false Christs and wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. And then he said, all these are the beginning of sorrows, labor pains. The things that he just mentioned were to merely be the beginning of labor pains. Now, the figurative expression of a woman's labor pains are often used in ancient Jewish writings and even in the Old Testament, such as in Micah 4.10, to describe the period of the end times. Not anything else but the last days, the end times. When do labor pains occur, ladies? How many of you have experienced labor pains? Okay, quite a, quite a few. Did they occur at the time of conception? No. Did they occur during the pregnancy? When do labor pains begin? Right. Very good class. <laughs> right at the, And you even know that. <laughs> they, they are experienced right before the baby is delivered. Now, for Jesus, therefore, to have used an illustration of labor pains to describe the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem, which happened a long time ago, or even to use it for the church age, that would be like, you know, during the whole pregnancy, would be inappropriate. 
The, you know, the 70 AD would be like the time of conception, we could almost say, and the church age would be the whole pregnancy. So it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be appropriate. Labor pains don't take place until shortly before the delivery, and they occur with increasing intensity and frequency. As you know, you watch that little graph going, you know, you go, oh no, here it comes, um, until the baby is born. And this is how it will be with the events that take place in connection with the Lord's return. The sorrows of the tribulation pains will not begin until right before Christ comes. And uh, they will increase rapidly, the pains will increase rapidly in both intensity and in worldwide scope until this earth practically explodes with a succession of rapid-fire catastrophes. Just read the book of Revelation and you'll see. First, there's the seals opened, and out of the seals come the seven trumpet judgments, and out of the seventh trumpet judgment come the seven vile or bold judgments, and they, those bold judgments are just one after another. Boom, boom, boom. And that's the labor pains increasing. And when it's all done, what, what is delivered? To this earth, the heavens open and the the baby, so to speak, is born. Jesus is delivered to this earth. And the kingdom of God on earth will be born, to use labor pain analogy. So one refute of the amillennialist position is based on that word sorrows or labor pains. Also, if you look at verse 13, it speaks about um, believers who, who endure to the end will be saved. It says, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, that isn't speaking about spiritual salvation, that you have to keep on living to be saved spiritually. It's speaking about those who endure, they survive the tribulation. They're saved bodily. They're saved physically to enter into the millennial kingdom in their physical bodies. Okay? Now that can't speak of the apostles to whom he's speaking here. Because they all were martyred. They, none of them endured physically. It can't speak of the church age either. Because none of us in this room today will endure to the end of the great tribulation to go bodily into the millennial kingdom. Why? Because we're going to be raptured out of here. We'll be in the millennial kingdom, but not in our physical bodies. We'll be in our glorified, resurrected bodies. So it has to speak about those who come to know the Lord during the tribulation who endure to the end. Also look at verse 14. It speaks of worldwide preaching of the gospel message. That cannot possibly refer to the first century destruction of of Jerusalem, nor can it even refer to contemporary times because there are still millions of people who have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel message. So the Olivet Discourse must refer to end times events that have not yet occurred. Now, during the tribulation, guess what? Everybody on the planet will have an opportunity to hear the gospel message. Not only will they hear it in Israel through the the witness of the two mighty witnesses, which will be televised all over the world, and everybody will hear their message, but also through the 144,000 flaming Jewish evangelists who will be sealed and protected and will be giving the gospel to all the Gentiles. And if somebody happened to miss those witnesses, guess what the Lord does? He sends an angel that flies around the whole globe and presents the gospel message so that nobody is without excuse. Nobody has an excuse. The whole world will hear the gospel in the, uh, in the tribulation days. So that cannot refer 
to anything today yet. It's speaking about the end times. Also look at verse 15. Christ spoke about the abomination of desolation, which was predicted by Daniel the prophet. In Daniel 9.27, it speaks of a horrible desolation of the Jerusalem temple that will occur before the Messiah establishes his kingdom and judges the world. Now, that has not happened in the church age. It didn't happen in 70 A.D. The only other time that the temple was abominated was before Christ. Remember in 168 B.C., that awful man Antiochus Epiphanes? He desecrated the temple by slaughtering a pig and then spreading its juices all over the Holy of Holies and setting up an image of Zeus. That was a mini picture, again, of what the Antichrist will do in the last days. But that abomination has not occurred in the church age. So this is speaking in verse 15 of something yet future. And then um, he says in verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time no, nor ever shall be. That has to speak about something that hasn't yet come. Because if it spoke of 70 A.D., there certainly have been worse wars and tribulation and trials since 70 A.D. I mean, that destruction was local. About maybe 100 to 200,000 people were killed. But have there been more people killed in other atrocities since then? Oh, yeah. World War I, World War II. Think of what Hitler did with the Jews. Think of what Stalin did in, in um, starving 10 million people purposely. Think of Saddam Hussein, and on and on we could go. There have been worse things. But this, you know, this will be the climax of all in the tribulation, the great tribulation. More people, I mean, there's nothing to top it. So it has to be speaking about something yet future. All right, have I given you enough reasons? There's more in your lessons, but are you convinced? Anyway, another reason why I'll give you one more, and this one is found in verse 29, verses 29, 30. This one tops all, really. Have any of you ever seen the sun and the moon darkened, the stars falling out of the sky, and the shaking of the, all of the heavens? If you did, I, boy, I hate that I missed that. <laughs> It says that the sun and the moon will be darkened. I know in Revelation it says that the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. To me that sounds like a, just like a nuclear holocaust, doesn't it? Have you ever seen one of those nuclear clouds, you know, and it'll, it would darken the sun because it would be all over the world so you wouldn't even be able to see the sun. It would look like the sun and the moon were darkened, the whole heavens shaking. It's, he says that that is going to occur right before the appearance of the sign of the Son of Man in the sky. So who could possibly say that this, uh, these startling events have already occurred? So these are just some of the reasons I give to you for why um, I believe that the Olivet Discourse is, the fulfillment of it is yet future, except for the passage in Luke we'll be looking at this morning. But otherwise, all the rest of it is yet future. But this is not to say, of course, that some of the general circumstances that are described in the sermon have not been experienced. I mean, this world has definitely experienced false Christs, many of them, and wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and diseases and earthquakes. We just had an example of earthquakes. I mean, but the events of Matthew 24 and 25 will be unique to the end times in both their sequence and the magnitude 
of their intensity. They will be worldwide in scope. I know after some of the trumpet judgments, it's like it affects a a third of the world. And then by the end of everything, the whole world is involved. And the events of the end times will be unprecedented in their damage and in their death toll. By the end of it, I think one half of the world's population has died. So... Um, I want to go on now to a third interpretation, which is called post-millennialism. And by the prefix post, you can surmise that it talks about a kingdom, the kingdom, the millennium. You know millennium is a word for thousand. In other words, it means that um, the 1,000-year the kingdom will not happen until after. I mean, Christ will not return until after, post-millennium, the millennium which doesn't make much sense. I mean, it, yeah, he's the king, so why would he come after the kingdom is over? Scratch your head on that one, but post-millennialists um, say that Christ will not return until after the millennial kingdom uh, is over, or at least some of them say after it's begun. They believe that through the preaching of the gospel message, the whole world will be Christianized before the Lord's return. They believe that the world will get increasingly better as the gospel gradually triumphs. They believe that it is Christians who, by our work of spreading the gospel, we will bring about the kingdom. You know, the church is going to bring about the kingdom here on earth so that Jesus then can return. So, you know, all the good credit for the kingdom is due to us, the body. Not the head. I know. Lord, help us. We are in trouble. <laughs> We're not doing a very good job. <laughs> you know, but that contradicts what Scripture says. Few will be saved. You know, not many will be on the narrow road. And it, what else does it say? Evil men will wax worse and worse. You know, post-millennialism is contrary to a lot of Scripture. And just a quick glance at the Olivet Discourse reveals to us that it predicts anything but a gradual improvement of world conditions due to the success of the preaching of the gospel. And uh, anyway, after World War I and World War II, a lot of the post-millennialists just went into extinction. I think you'd be very hard-pressed nowadays to find a post-millennialist. Now, I have books at home that are written by liberals, and I have books written by amillennialists, which is amazing to me. I have one man who I think so highly of, a godly Christian man, and I love his commentaries. But do you know when he gets to the Olivet Discourse, he has like two pages on it, and it says, well, you know, basically it's not relevant for today. I couldn't believe it because he's an amillennialist. If I gave you his name, you'd be surprised, but... Um, he doesn't believe in the millennium. And he believes all of the discourse has already been fulfilled. All right, but anyway, I'm not really concerned about post-millennialism because there aren't very many post-millennialists left. I mean, just look at the world. You know it's not getting better and better. Well, a fourth way to interpret the Olivet Discourse is the one we are using. It's the view of pre-millennialism. And what do you think that means? Yeah, we believe that Jesus will arrive, come to this earth before the 1,000-year kingdom, pre. That makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to believe that the king will come 
and then establish his kingdom, that he needs to come before he establishes his kingdom because he's the king. Who's going to reign over the kingdom if he isn't the king? I don't want anybody else but him because everything else will go sour because we're all, you know, human and we have the sin nature. But anyway, it's the only view that interprets the Olivet Discourse and other such prophetic passages of Scripture, other such eschatological passages or apocalyptic literature as Revelation, Daniel, Zechariah. It's the only one that interprets these passages literally, specifically, and as being yet future. Premillennialists believe that Jesus will return to earth both literally and bodily before the millennial age begins. In fact, it will be his second coming alone that will make the kingdom possible. If he didn't return to this earth and end the battle of Armageddon, what do you think would happen to this planet? We would annihilate ourselves. It's only his coming that saves this planet for the thousand years of the kingdom because man would just blow himself up. All right, that is the introduction. Now let's get into the sermon. (laughs) All right, we have discussed last week, we discussed the setting and the subject. Now today we're going to begin the sermon itself, okay? And for this, now you need to be over in Luke. This is the only part of the Olivet Discourse. Now you know the Olivet Discourse is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, But Matthew is the one who gives it to us most completely in chapters 24 and 25. But Matthew didn't tell us the answer to the the first question posed to the Lord, which was, when will these things be? Luke is the only one who gave us the answer to the first question. And it is the only part of the Olivet Discourse that is already happened, that it's already been fulfilled, and that was the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. So that's what we're going to read about right now in his answer in Luke. Look with me. I'm going to read verses 20 to 24 in Luke 21. It says, and when Jesus is speaking, Luke 21, starting at verse 20, this is the first answer to Matthew 24, 3's when question. He says, and when... Ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. In other words, it's near. When you see Jerusalem compassed about by an enemy army, you can know that it's just about time for Jerusalem to be destroyed. He says, Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the, now you might want to underline this, these be the days of vengeance. Whose vengeance? God's vengeance. Vengeance for what? Vengeance for having rejected his son. These are the days of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He says that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Verse 23, But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. 
So this answer to the first question that the disciples pose, when shall these things be, is unique to Luke. He's the only one who gives us the answer. And Jesus did not refer to the far time, the far distant event of the end times tribulation period, as in the rest of the Olivet Discourse, but to the near distant 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, which would be 37 years later from when he spoke these words. I got to thinking, you know, 40 in the Bible is the number of testing. You know, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. There's a lot of 40s in the Bible. It's the number for testing. He had an earthly ministry of how many years? Three. And then they rejected him. They crucified him and he left. But then it's like the Lord gave them 37 extended years of patience. You had 37 and 3, and you get what? 40. Jerusalem, finally the Lord was at the end of the testing period. Israel still had not come to a knowledge of, of his son, Jesus Christ, didn't repent of her sin of having rejected him. So judgment came in 70 A.D. Interesting. Well, the first century destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was a divine foreshadowing of what is yet future to come when the Antichrist empowered by Satan himself, fully releases his anger on Israel in the last half of the tribulation period, which is known as the Great Tribulation. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 12. So the Lord's prediction of Luke that we find here in Luke was somewhat of a double prophecy. You know, there are a lot of prophecies in Scripture that have dual fulfillment. And this is one of those. It was specifically, and you'll see how specifically this prophecy here in Luke was fulfilled in 70 AD, down to minute details. It was specifically fulfilled in 70 AD, but generally speaking, it will also be fulfilled in the time of the Great Tribulation. Because once again, you know, when they see the Antichrist set up the abomination of desolation in the temple, what does Jesus tell them to do? Same thing, flee, get out of there just as fast as you can. But we know here in Luke that he's talking specifically about the 70 A.D. destruction because look at verse 24. He says, They'll fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all the nations. When did that happen? It did literally happen in 70 A.D. All the Jews after that, uh, you know, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the whole, the whole land, actually, they carried all the survivors away captive. They were scattered to the four corners of the earth, where many of them still remain today. Now, they will not be scattered to the four corners of the earth in the time of the Great Tribulation. They won't be. So this, we know, was a, you know literally fulfilled in 70 A.D., the Lord's answer to the disciples' first question was essentially given as a sign. Now, they didn't ask for a sign in the first question, did they? They said, when will these things be? They asked for a sign in the second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of this age? But he gives them a sign even in the answer to their first question. The Jews always seek a sign. The, the, the church, this isn't written for the church because we're not looking for signs, we're looking for the Savior. All right. But he gives them a sign. 
He said, they said, when is it going to be destroyed? When's all this going to happen? And he gives them a sign because he tells them that when Israel would see Jerusalem compassed about by our, an army, she could know that the time of her destruction, her desolation was near. The surrounding army, therefore, was to be a warning sign for those who would believe his words. You have to believe him to get the warning, right? And when they would see or hear about an enemy army approaching Jerusalem, the people of Judea were to do what? Flee just as, as fast and as immediately. Don't even bother to get the cat. Don't bother to get the goldfish or the dog. You know, just get out of there as fast as you can hightail it out of there. And woe to women who are pregnant because when you're pregnant, it's hard, harder to run, isn't it? <laughs> Anyone pregnant in here want to give us a demonstration? <laughs> or if you're nursing your child, because, you know, you got to stop and nurse the child every so, so often. So he says, woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers, because their speed in flee, fleeing away would be hindered. And then he goes on in, in verse 23, he predicted that great distress and wrath would fall upon his people. His people. Who are his people? The Jews. This isn't about the church. This is about his people, the Jews. And that it would be the days of vengeance in which many would die by the sword, while many others would be led away as captives into the Gentile nations. Jerusalem, he said in verse 24, would be trodden down by Gentiles until when? Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. You know, the times of the Gentiles began with King Nebuchadnezzar way back in 586 B.C. when he came and took Israel captive into Babylon. That was the big... Remember Daniel's statue? You know, the big statue? That's, that's a statue of the times of the Gentiles. And it began with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, and then the, um, the end times uh, Roman Empire that will consist of ten nations represented by the ten toes. And when will that times of the Gentiles be destroyed? When a stone cut out without hands comes from the heavens and falls on the ten toes, which is the last Gentile empire, and the whole thing comes crumbling down, the wind comes and blows it away. That will be the end of the times of the Gentiles. So is Israel still living in the times of the Gentiles to this day? Yes, she is. She has many Gentiles oppressing her even in her land. It's her land, but the Palestinians live there. And is she oppressed by the Gentile nations of the world? Yes, the whole world is against Israel. And that, that the times of the Gentiles for her will not end until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he, you know, ends the battle of Armageddon, which is, you know, all the armies have turned against her. In Luke 21, verses 20 to 24, then he foretold of the approach of the Roman armies under Titus, who was the human instrument God used to judge the Jewish generation that crucified his son. 37 years after they crucified Christ is still that generation. So he's punished the days of vengeance for the generation that crucified and rejected his son. It is God's day, it was God's day of vengeance on Israel for her willful unbelief. Willful unbelief. 
And he predicted, Jesus predicted the slaughter of many, just as he predicted that not one temple stone would be left upon another. And both prophecies were literally fulfilled, literally. It has been recorded that over 100,000 people were killed and that no living Jews were left in Jerusalem after its destruction by the Romans. Even the wounded, those who were wounded during the war, it was called the Jewish War, those that were wounded, those who were sick, and those who were aged were all put to death because the Roman army just didn't want to take care of them and have that many prisoners take care of the old and the sick and the wounded, so they just put them to death. Um, it was, it's said that 97,000 young Jewish men who remained alive after this war were taken into captivity, and the remainder of the Jews would be women who weren't old or sick or wounded and children who weren't sick or wounded. Um, they were, and, and middle-aged men, they were scattered to all the nations of the world. It's fascinating to learn, and this to me is the most fascinating part of this whole lesson today. So make sure you get this, because this is really neat. Those Jewish people who did believe in Jesus at the time of Titus's approach to Jerusalem, way back in 60, I think it was about 69 when he finally did, no, it was 70 when he finally did approach the city, those Jewish people who, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that they did take his words seriously and trusted in them, when they heard about the approach of Titus's army, you know what they did? They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They fled. They heard Titus was coming, and they fled. It says that they, and this is history. This is not made up. This is actually what happened. Um, they recognized his warning sign of Luke 21:20, and they followed his advice by rapidly leaving the city. They quickly crossed the Jordan River, and they hid themselves in the city of Pella, P-E-L-L-A. It's a Transjordan city. And they found refuge there from the Roman siege on Jerusalem. When the destruction of Jerusalem was all over, these Christian Jews then received Rome's special permission to live in some of the outlying sections of the city of Jerusalem. They didn't live in the city itself because it was leveled, but they lived like around the city. And they are the only community that continued to remain until the second century A.D. The only community of Jews living in Israel was this community of Jewish Christians who had taken the Lord's words seriously and literally. What does that say to us today and to the world out there? If they would only take Jesus seriously and literally, they too could avoid the destruction that is to come. Very important. What he says will come to pass will come to pass. Guaranteed. This is history proving that. They were the only ones who were spared. Were the ones who believed in Jesus' word. Isn't that something? Well, when the Jews went so far... All right, no, I'm sorry, I skipped a paragraph here. 
Now, thanks, thanks to the work of historians and archaeologists, many of whom were not believers, we do, in the rest of our lesson, we have the actual details of what did take place in 70 A.D. and the years that preceded that destruction. It all began in May of 66 A.D. You know, the long, smoldering discontent of the Jews against the Romans finally burst out into open rebellion under the incompetent rule of a Roman named Gessius Florus. I told the ladies yesterday, can you imagine naming your son Gessius? So you could say to people, guess what his name is. It's Gessius Florus. <laughs> Anyway, you know the, the Jews were very discontent with Roman oppression, even at the time of Jesus, 37 years earlier. And that's why they were so disappointed that he didn't overthrow Rome. But so you can imagine 37 years later, they've just had it up to here. You know, they're so sick of Rome. And so when this, this Gessius comes into power, he does something really stupid. He demands that the Jews pay pay uh, him, or the Romans, 17 talents of money from the temple treasury. Now, the Jews are already paying heavy taxes to Rome. But when he throws this on them, they just, they had enough. Because 17 talents of money was a lot. It was like $17,000 back then, which would be several million, you know, comparable to today's money. And so the Jews had it. And they attacked Roman palaces and public buildings. And after a two-day siege on Fort Antonia, which was a Roman fort, they, they, got, they seized it from the Romans and they slaughtered the entire Roman garrison that was stationed there. All the Roman soldiers, they killed them. And then they went so far as to prohibit the daily sacrifices of non-Jews to the Roman emperor. You know, they were all into Caesar worship. So they would offer sacrifices to Caesar. And the non-Jew, I mean the Jews put an end to that. And so when they did that, that was like declaring open war on Rome, which is really not a very bright thing to do. You know, little bitty Israel is declaring war on the whole Roman Empire, which covered most of the known world at that time. Not too bright. <laughs> Um, and so rebellion immediately flared up everywhere in Israel. Now, the Roman soldiers in Israel were in the minority. You know, there were far more Jews. So the Roman um, uh, governor up in Syria was a man named Cestius Gallus. He quickly came with a legion of Roman soldiers from Syria down to Israel to try to help out the Roman soldiers there. But, because, you know, it would take from Rome, way over in Italy, it would take a long time for soldiers to get over to Israel. So he was nearby and he came down. But somehow, now historians are kind of mystified about this. They don't know what happened, but this Cestius Gallus got spooked. I mean, he had enough soldiers to end the rebellion, but he got spooked by something. And therefore he began to, he got seized with panic and he began to retreat. And when the Jews saw him retreating, they came upon him with renewed zeal, and the result was very heavy losses for Gallus and his Syrian army of Roman soldiers. Well, knowing that Rome was going to strike back on them with a vengeance, but it would take them several months, you know, for Rome to get an army down to them, so the Jews know that Rome's going to come back at them. 
So they begin to quickly fortify all of their cities. Now, Flavius Josephus, how many of you have heard of him? Famous Jewish historian. We all think of him as a historian. But he was originally the Galilean commander-in-chief during this war. Galilee, you know, they were in on all this rebellion against Rome, and he was their commanding general. Now, on the Roman side of things, uh, Emperor Nero was... He was the emperor at this time. Nero was a bad, bad emperor, a wicked, awful man. But he entrusted command to General Titus Flavius Vespasian, who had proven himself to be an excellent soldier in Rome's conquest of Britain. So Nero says to Vespasian, you're the general, I'm going to put in charge, I'm going to send you to Israel, put out this rebellion. So he sends... Vespasian, with his son, also named Titus, we can call him Titus Jr., all right? Vespasian comes with his son and with three of the best legions in the entire Roman army, which would be, a legion is 6,000 men. So he comes with 18,000 men. And he begins his attack. If you look at a map and you go from Rome over to Israel, you have to go first through Galilee because it's to the north. So he begins his attack in Galilee. Now, what are these days? The days of vengeance, God's vengeance. He begins in Galilee, and the villages on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus had spent more time during his earthly ministry than in any other area of Israel, were the cities and towns and villages that experienced the first bloodshed of what has become known as the Jewish War. Remember when Jesus said, Woe unto you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum? This is their woes. This was their time of woe. Much bloodshed up there in Galilee. Days of vengeance. And um, their general was taken captive. Who was their general, the chief commander? Josephus. He was taken a captive. He was put in chains and taken to headquarters at Vespasian's command. So for the rest of the Jewish war, this was 66 A.D. It didn't end until 70 A.D. For the rest of the war, Josephus witnessed everything that went on from inside the enemy camp. And, you know, he wrote everything down. So we have the details of everything that happened from Josephus, who was an eyewitness. That's why we know of him more as an historian. Well, 6,000 Galilean survivors of all this bloodshed were sent as slaves to begin the building of the famous Corinthian Canal. Have you ever seen the Corinthian Canal, anybody? It's a magnificent, very deep. Can you remember looking down at it? I've seen it because both of my grandparents on my father's side were from near Corinth, I'm a Corinthian Greek, which isn't very much to brag about because they were so carnal. But um, (laughs) anyway, I've seen it. And I never realized before, but it was built by Galilean slaves from this war, this Jewish war. Well, then the following spring, which would be the spring of 68, we're now in 68 A.D., 
um, while Vespasian was trying to suppress the Jewish rebels now in Judea, he suppressed Galilee, so he's working his way down into the southern province of Judea, and he suddenly gets word that Emperor Nero has committed suicide. Good riddance. He was a wicked man, but he killed himself. And then civil war broke out in Rome, and the general, Vespasian, halted his campaign against the Jews as he waited to receive further orders on what to do from the next emperor. Well, after Nero, there was a succession within one year of three emperors that sat on the throne. Bing, 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 all three were assassinated. How would you like to have been a Roman emperor and just worried to death about every time you took a drink of wine or ate anything that somebody was going to assassinate you. But uh, So there was total chaos and confusion in Rome, and Vespasian is just sitting there on the uh, north side of Judea waiting for everything to settle down to know what he's supposed to do next. And while he's there waiting... um, the the rest of the Roman army finally went into Rome and um, and and established some kind of uh, peace there, and they decided that they wanted Vespasian himself to be the next emperor. So he got word that he was to be the next emperor. So he hightailed it out of there to go back to Rome to be the emperor. And who do you think he put in his place to finish the Jewish war? Right, Titus Jr., little tidy. <laughs> tidy whitey. <laughs> so Titus Jr., and now because Titus' father is the emperor of the Roman Empire, Titus gets 80,000 troops. You know, his dad was going to make sure nothing happened to his son. He had gone into uh, Israel with only 18,000 troops, but he sends his son 80,000 troops. So the siege of Titus Jr. against Jerusalem began then in the month of Nisan, 70 A.D. Where have we heard that month before? Isn't that the month they crucified God's son? And guess what? It was the time of the Passover. Now, the Jews were, again, all accumulated in Jerusalem because the war had been put on hold for at least a year and a half, and they weren't that concerned about things anymore, so they flocked to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the city was distracted from its... then distracted from all of its Passover festivities when they got word of the approach of the Roman legions. Um, And that's when those who believed the Lord's words hightailed it out of there and were spared the destruction to come. But would you believe you read about all the internal feuding that was going on within the city? It's just amazing. They said that there was probably just as many miseries and um, destruction and loss of both life and property that went on within the city because of fighting among the Jews themselves as took place, you know, outside the city when the Romans came. And that probably shouldn't surprise us because weren't they always fussing and feuding? The Sadducees against the Pharisees and the Zealots against the Herodians. Well, that's what was going on within the city because they were arguing. The Zealots were saying, no, we need to stay here and fight the Romans. You know, slit every one of their throats. 80,000 troops? 
Come on. Well, you know, in the city, there were probably a couple million people. So they probably were thinking, we could do it. We could do it. So they're saying, we're going to stay here. We're going to fight. Whereas the Sadducees and the Herodians, they would be saying, no, you know, we just need to surrender and um, compromise with them like we have been doing. They didn't want to lose their power and their position. So there was all this fussing and feuding going on until finally they realized that they had a more common, serious enemy outside the city than they did inside. But the, the general's first call, I mean, he was, if they had just surrendered, they would have found out that Titus Jr. was a very generous and reasonable and merciful man. They would have been spared. He would have just probably killed some of the leaders of the, the rebellion. But um, he called them to surrender many, many times. But every time he was met with derision and laughter. Consequently, he finally gave the command to attack. And he had these quick-firing siege engines, stone throwers, and Roman artillery that would launch 100-pound stones at the city from a distance of only 600 feet. Battering rams, you know, began to crack and thunder as the foundations of the walls of the city were assaulted. And then, you know, finally the, the feuding inside the city ceased. Well, when the Roman troops successfully broke through the most northern wall of the city and then five days later broke through the second wall, taking the whole northern section of the city captive, Titus was then convinced that finally Jerusalem would surrender. So he called off the attack and he sought for another peaceful surrender. But again, the Jews scoffed at him. In fact, they packed themselves along the old wall, you know, the top of the old wall on the north side of the temple and on every remaining rooftop within the city. They're all up there and they spit down their hatred on the Roman soldiers below. They had no thought whatsoever of capitulating, of surrendering. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have been glad to have put up a white flag and saved myself and my family, wouldn't you? But no, they were hard-hearted people. And then he again, he made one last attempt here to win the Jews without bloodshed. He sent to them their captive countrymen. Who did he send to them? Josephus. He sent to them Josephus. Josephus walked out to the fortress walls of the city and he cried out to his own people the following words. And these are from his own pen. This is what he said to his people. He said, O hard-hearted men, throw away your weapons. Have pity on your country that stands on the edge of the abyss. Look around and behold the beauty of all that you are ready to betray. What a city! What a temple, what gifts from so many nations. Who would dare to let all of this be given to the flames? Is there one of you who can wish for all this to be no more? What more precious treasure could have been given to man to preserve? You obdurate creatures, more unfeeling than these very stones? He went on and he tried to he tried to remind his people of all the great deeds of their forefathers, of their wonderful history. And of the mission of Israel. What was their mission? They were to be a witness to the rest of the world. He, he remi- tried to remind them of all kinds of things. You know, you don't want to give up all of this. But his efforts and his pleas to get them to surrender peacefully and to preserve the great city and themselves fell on deaf ears. And the Jews hurled insults at him. 
I'm sure they said some of the things to him that they had said to Jesus, you know, you despicable Galilean. And they accused him of being a traitor. And you know, to this day, the Jews still consider Flavius Josephus to be a traitor, and they don't bother reading his history. So Titus was forced to continue the siege. Thousands of people died within the city, and it's recorded that 115,800 corpses were thrown over the walls of the city just because the people had no means and no strength to bury them in the traditional way. Deserters and raiders were caught and crucified by the Romans, with as many as 500 in one day being nailed to crosses just outside of the city. If you tried to escape at this point, you know, you needed to escape when the Christian Jews did. But at this point, if you tried to escape and you were caught, you were crucified. And tree after tree was cut down. And they were used not only for these crosses, but for battering rams, for siege ramps, for scaling ladders, for campfires, you know, to keep the soldiers warm at night. And eventually, what was once a very flourishing countryside became a barren wasteland. And the unbearable stench of death hung over the desolate land. Josephus wrote this. He says, No stranger who had seen Judea of old and the lovely suburbs of its capital and now saw this devastation could have restrained his tears and lamentations at such hideous change. For the war had turned all that beauty into a wilderness, and no man who knew these places of old and suddenly saw them again could possibly have recognized them. Do you understand now why, why Jesus wept as he looked at Jerusalem and the beauty of it and knew what would happen in 37 years and lamented, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, how often would I have gathered you under my wings? By the way, do you know when he said that? He was quoting from Psalm 91. And in Psalm 91, if you go home and read, the, I think it's like the first four verses or something, it's speaking about God, the Almighty, the Most High God is the one who says, I will gather you under my wings. So when he says that, he's again claiming deity. But we understand why he wept. He could see the end from the beginning. Well, then Titus sealed off the city with a massive high wall of dirt formed in a wide circle around Jerusalem. Now, prior to the creation of this dirt wall, this high dirt wall, there were some amounts of supplies that were sneaking into the city. You know, some of the Jews risked being caught and crucified, and they would slip out, and they would steal some food and, and, get, and get back into the cities. But once he made this wall, this high dirt wall around the city, all such efforts proved futile. Nobody could get out or in anymore. Now, it's interesting to consider that true historical fact in light of what Jesus said in Luke 19.43. Have you got that in front of you? He said, Thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side. Now, literally, in the Greek where he says they shall cast a trench about thee, literally, it's they will throw up a dirt wall bank around thee. Exactly like Jesus said it would happen, it happened. I mean, you know, he knows what he's talking about. Well, famine then began to haunt the city. 
because they couldn't get out, couldn't get any more food in, and so famine hit, and, and it drove people beyond all normal boundaries with regard to food. They even say that one wealthy noble woman named Maria roasted and ate her own infant. I hate to even think about that. But it, when Titus got word of that, he was so upset that he, he swore he would bury that dreadful deed under the ruins of the city. And then those who were still, and now, you know, people are starving to death, so they're so desperate there, they are attempting to flee the city. They think it'll be even worth the risk of crucifixion. And so there are people trying to get out of the city, but the Romans, or at least one section of the Roman soldiers, got this, in, this idea in their mind that the Jews were swallowing their, their money, their gold and their silver and their precious stones. And so when they caught someone fleeing, they, they killed them by slitting open their abdomen to retrieve what they had swallowed. And they said that as many as 2,000 Jews in one night died in that grotesque manner. Well, that wasn't by Titus's command at all. And when he heard about that, he was furious and he had every Roman who had been involved killed. So there's just bloodshed all over the place. And he now is very, very anxious to end this war. And so he gives the command for the battering rams to continue day and night, day and night. In early July of 70 A.D., the Romans stormed the Tower of Antonia and the palace in which Jesus had been sentenced to death. And they were razed to the ground. They were leveled. The palace where he had been condemned. These are the what? The days of vengeance. And the temple was next. Now I'm almost through. I know I've kept you over. Many of the Roman soldiers wanted to treat the temple as a fort, as a fortress. But Titus opposed them. He wanted to spare the temple, the famous sanctuary that was known throughout the whole world. And so for the last time, he demanded that the remaining Jews surrender. He said, surrender. Look, it's over, you guys. Surrender. However, their answer, can you believe this, was another flat refusal. Titus, therefore, had no choice but to give the orders to begin firing stones and arrows into the temple court itself. Because by now, all the Jews who were remaining are in the temple. They're in the temple court, you know, that big, huge outer uh, court of the Gentiles. And it said that the Jews fought wildly, almost like men who were possessed. They had like double and triple their strength normally. They just, and the reason for that is because of their understanding of the Zechariah 14 prophecy. You see, they were thinking, in Zechariah it says, when Jerusalem shall find itself, you know, being attacked by all the nations of the, of the earth, uh, so to speak, um, that's when the Messiah will return and set his feet on the Mount of Olives. Well, that, of course, we know is speaking about the end of the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Coming. But they didn't understand that. They thought that, okay, we're being attacked. Jerusalem's about to be destroyed. Any minute, the Messiah is going to appear. So they're fighting for all they're worth, thinking if we can just hold on and endure to the end, he's going to come any moment. So they fought like men who were possessed. Werner Keller, in his book, The Bible is History, tells us what happened next. He says, in order to force an entry, Titus set fire to the wooden temple gates. He had to get in, so he set fire to the gates. 
Hardly were they consumed when he gave instructions to put out the fire and make a passage for his men, his army, to attack. His order of the day specifically was spare the sanctuary. He wanted to spare the temple. But during the night, the fire had reached the inner court, and the Romans had their hands full to put it out. They're trying to put out the fire. But these crazy Jews are fighting against them while they're trying to put out the fire, right? So it's just total chaos. And, um, and the Romans are having a very hard time doing all this. And, but they do manage to drive the Jews back, and they pursued them through the courts. You know, they went from the court of the Gentile into the court of the women. They're pushing them further and further. And then um, in wild tumult, Werner Keller says, the battle raged around the sanctuary. Carried away by excitement, one of the soldiers, without waiting for orders and without any sense of the horror of his deed, or rather being driven by some evil spirit, seized a blazing torch and hoisted up on the shoulders of one of his comrades. He flung the blazing torch through the golden window that opened into the rooms that lay beside the Holy of Holies. Well, what is inside the Holy of or next to the Holy of Holies? Big, huge jars of oil. The inside of the Holy of Holies was paneled with wood, and it contained highly flammable materials for the sacrifices, such as jars of holy oil. And soon Titus saw flames shooting high into the air. He tried to have the flames extinguished, calling in a loud voice for soldiers in the thick of fighting to stop and to concentrate on the fire. But the hot rage of his men could not be restrained. Neither could the fire. And the holy place was burned to the ground in spite of his wishes and his commands. You see, the Lord's prophecies will come to pass no matter how fervently men might try to accomplish their own plans and purposes. You know, when the whole thing burned, and of course the temple had been covered with gold, and the, the fire, the heat of the fire melted the gold, and the gold seeped down between all the cracks and crevices of the stones that made up the temple, And days after it finally cooled off, the Roman soldiers pried apart every stone to get to that melted gold. Didn't Jesus say not one stone would be left upon another? Literally, it came to pass. Well, after putting down all resistance, Titus gave the orders to level the whole city and the burned remains of the temple to the ground. And those Jews who were still alive after this horrific war were led away captive into all nations. Israel, you see, had rejected her Messiah. And the consequences of such willful unbelief, despite more than adequate messianic evidence, were the wrath and the judgment of God Almighty. You see, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, isn't it? I have a question in closing. You know, since the Lord's answer to the disciples' first question of Matthew 24, 3 was literally fulfilled, wasn't it? We just saw it. Literally fulfilled to every little detail. Then why do so many within Christendom insist that the remainder of this sermon, which is the answer to the disciples' second question, why do they insist that it won't be fulfilled literally, but that it will be fulfilled spiritually or allegorically or something? It's, you know what that is? That's called inconsistent interpretation. 
All right, I know I've kept you over, but um, thank you again for your patience and your interest in history. Why should we be interested in history? Because it's his story, isn't it?